Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Gilbert. Um, if you're watching online, I'm glad that you guys are with us too. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've never met, I'd love the chance to get to meet you. I'll be up front just at the close of the service and uh, get, to, get to know you. Um, like Connor said, we are continuing in our countercultural conviction series. Uh, we got two weeks left, so this week and next week. Uh, and then we'll be back into the Gospel of John. Today's topic is generosity, and we're going to be in the book of Malachi. So if you're a Bible sword drill champion, you've been waiting for this day. You can find Malachi right now. If you've never heard of that book, uh, you can either go to the table of contents and find it. Or if you get to Matthew in the New Testament, just go one book over to the left. We're getting in Malachi chapter 3, kind of bouncing around a lot. Now, with a topic like generosity, the natural kind of question would be, well, how is this counter- culture. I mean, I thought, like, it seems like generosity is kind of one of those things, like, in our culture, like, you'd want to have, kind of like our topic last week of caring for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, it's kind of like this. If you, if you have kids, have you ever had to teach your kids to be selfish? Have you ever had to teach them to be greedy? Like, have you ever stood outside a Target and said, okay, kids, huddle up. We're about to go in the store, and here's what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to run to the toy aisle and beg for toys. I need, I'm going to need you to beg for just more stuff. Even though your room is overflowing with things, I'm just going to need you to go in there and just make a huge scene, throw a fit if you can, just because you want more. You ever had to coach your kids in that? No, my wife took my kids uh, to one of those like Halloween costume stores this week, which is like Temptation Island for children, and they just can't help but like clamor for all the stuff that like you have to have. And our world, our culture is kind of the same way. We as humans are consumed with what we want to consume. We're, we're hardwired for just more. It doesn't even matter what it is. We just want. We just want more. There's a Famous actor, comedian, Jim Carrey, wise sage, he says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. And you listen to that and you're like, yeah, but I at least would like to try and see. <laughs> I mean, give me a shot at it. When we talk about generosity, um, we're not only talking about money, although full disclosure, we will talk about it this morning. But generosity should be applied to everything that we have that we can spend. So generosity should be applied to how we spend our time, how we spend our talents, how we spend our abilities, how we spend ourselves, how we spend our, our lives. When we talk about generosity, money does come up because money happens to be one of the closest revealers of what is most important to you. Jesus would say that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if I wanted to evaluate what was important to you, I would just simply want to know, well, where do you spend your money and where do you spend your time? What do you spend those resources on? And that, could, I, I, that would give me a picture of what's important to you. Now, if you're here for the first time or for one of the first times and a friend or a neighbor has invited you, don't start giving them the side eye because they didn't know we were talking about this. It's not a setup, right? Um, and we don't talk about money here very often at all. We don't pass a plate. We don't have a moment like that. But the Bible does talk about money quite a bit. However, the, the, the Bible has well over 2,000 verses related to money. And all I want to do this morning is just let the Scripture show us what God says about generosity. 
And then, I, like last week, you can take it home and you can argue with him. If, now, if you're here and you're, and you're not a Christian, I believe that the Bible is very relevant. Uh, I believe that's extremely helpful. I believe that it shows us as humans the best way to live. But if you're not a Christian, you're, you're kind of off the hook a, a, a little bit because you've not signed up to obey God or obey the Bible. But I want to encourage you to listen in because I believe that you're going to see something really winsome about how God wants people to live. But if you are a Christian, then this is what God has called you to submit to. His word, his ways, this is for you. Uh, also, this is not a message with a big ask uh, that's associated with it. We're not starting like a building campaign or anything like that so you can settle down. Um, in fact, I have the huge privilege of leading in an extremely generous church. We give away every year hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I know there's also a stereotype of pastors that are always asking for money, and I know how that can go wrong. So you don't have to follow me into the parking lot after the service, see what I drive, nothing like that. And then lastly, last disclaimer, and then we're going to pray, um, is, th is this. Money is not evil. Money is not evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The scripture says the love of money is. M money is not evil. In fact, money is nice to have. But we get evil with money when we treat it like a God and not like a gift. Being wealthy is not a sin. Being greedy is. So if, if you're a Christian, be successful. Make a ton of money. Somebody's going to do it anyway. It might as well be you. And then be super generous with it. Give it away and bless people like crazy. Let's pray and ask God just to uh, help us. Father, we love you. God, we do thank you. And, and like Connor just led us, uh, God, we, our hearts are so full on this grace that we have. And we rest and we celebrate. Um, and we have a, a security and a confidence because you have indeed paid it all. Um, and God, we know that you are a good God who gives good gifts to us. Your word says every good and perfect thing that we have comes from you. And so, God, we, again, we rest in that. And so when we start to talk about generosity, Lord, our natural tendency might be to start to freak out and start, start to control and maybe rationalize and make excuses why we can't or why we shouldn't. Um, but God, I just thank you that we are free from all of that because of your goodness and because of your kindness and because you are the God who sees to it, the Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. Father, um, but we need your spirit to help us with that because this wrestling match, Lord, is supernatural. So we need your power, Lord. We need the supernatural spirit of God working in our heart, revealing the things that are idols, God, and leading us by your kindness to repentance this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And God, would we know that we can trust you? Would we know that your word is is sweet to us, that your word sustains us, that your word is life to us? So, God, I just pray that you would protect us from bristling against your word this morning. And, God, that we embrace it as the loving instruction that it is. It's a way to freedom. So let us experience that. For your honor, your glory, your name, Jesus. It's powerful. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, 
says this. I'm going to read a whole section of scripture here, about six verses, and then we'll just kind of work through that this morning. And there's a couple other places we'll probably break out to. It says this. So Malachi chapter 3, this is a prophet of God talking to God's people, saying this. Verse 6 in Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees, and you have not kept them. So listen to the word of the Lord. He says, but return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So it starts her with a question in verse 8 and 9. God's saying, well, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? And, and Hebrew experts are kind of puzzled over this because the word rob here is, is a very uh, rare word. In fact, it's only used in one other place. Uh, and it's not the normal Hebrew word for rob, which is just to take something that doesn't belong to you. This word, uh, it actually means to oppress or to plunder. It, it's the sort of word that you would use to describe like when a wealthy, powerful country would come into a, a poor weaker country uh, or poorer town. It's a very violent word. And the reason that scholars have really kind of wondered about this is because it seems odd that God would use this word to talk about what a human could do to him. So when people hear this from God, they're, they're, they're shocked. It's actually kind of like this sarcastic response that they have to God where they say, how could we be robbing you? What are you even talking about? What do, you mean, what do you mean return? We haven't gone anywhere. And God comes back and he says very specifically to them, what I'm talking about is your lack of generosity. And in this instance, he's saying, I'm talking about the lack of generosity with your money. I'm talking about the fact that you hold on to too much of it and you spend too much on yourself and you don't give enough away. God, God says, you are robbing me, and he's, he's referring to what you and I would, would call their stinginess or their lack of generosity, but he's talking about it in a way that actually reaches deeper than most people would just think on the surface. And, and, the, and the fact that they're kind of oblivious to this kind of shows us that. Like, God, what are you talking? It seems like you're kind of overreacting to what this is. The response of the people, it shows how we can be kind of blind to our lack of generosity. There's a, there's a thing about greediness that kind of blinds us to it. In, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28 and 29, David has told the people of God, uh, we're going to gather resources so we can, we can build the temple. Uh, and, and in the process, David prays to God after they've been giving uh, all the, these resources to build the temple. And this is what David says. So he, he prays the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. And then he says this, For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as, as head over all. Verse 12 says this, wealth and honor 
come from you. So David knows exactly where all of this stuff is coming from. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? David's like, who are we that we would even be able to give you what we have been giving you? Because everything comes from you, David says. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything comes from you. We've only given you what's yours to begin with. What this teaches us is that anything that you have is a gift from God. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Christians believe. Anything we have is from God. This is a countercultural position. This is a countercultural position because our culture teaches us and kind of rears us in and schools us in this kind of individualism this autonomy, and it pushes against this, this idea that everything we have comes from God because you could sit there and you could say, well, listen, I have what I have because I've worked hard for it. And I, and I believe that because success is earned by hard work. The scripture talks about that as well. But you have worked hard for what you have with abilities and opportunities and circumstances that God has provided and you can say, well, well, I have what I have because of what I've done. But if God had decided that you would have been born in South Sudan or the Central African Republic, things would be a lot more difficult for you. Your abilities, your opportunities, and your circumstances are God-given. And if you have more wealth than someone else ordinarily, it's because God allowed for it. That's the countercultural position that Christians embrace. It's what the scripture teaches here. That's what David is recognizing. He says, the only reason we have all this stuff is because you let us have it. The point is, everything we have is a gift from God. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible also teaches that God doesn't give up ownership of something when he gives it. Everything you have is a gift of God, but everything you have, he is still the ultimate owner of. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's like, you, you have been given it, but you relate to your money, you relate to your time, you relate to your talent, you relate to your ability, you relate to your opportunity, a way that a money manager relates to the wealth or the finances of an investor uh, or his clients. Not as an owner, but as a broker or as a steward. If you're a money manager and your funds grow, you, you get excited because that will benefit you, but you don't think that it's all yours and you can do whatever you want with it. There's an accountability for how you invest the wealth of others that needs to be in line with the desires and the purposes of the investors. And if you don't do that, it's called fraud. So what the scriptures teach is that God is the great creator and investor. And everything that you've been given, you've been given as his money manager. And we see what he values, we see what he desires in his word. And in his word, we see that he created the world to be an interconnected place of peace and harmony. And when God gives you more, he wants you to invest that into his world in such a way that serves the good of others and human flourishing for the fame of Jesus. 
Everything you have is to that end. But if, what you, but, if, but if you don't see what you have as a gift, no matter how large or how small, and you don't think of yourself as an investor, but just like an, an owner of all that you have, and that it's only to serve you and your purposes, what the scripture teaches is that you're, you're plundering God's creation. You're contributing to the devolving of God's word. You're defrauding the ultimate investor. Verse 8, what Malachi is teaching us there is that there's this kind of power that money has over us um, that kind of blinds us even to what that power is. Money is different than other things because you're blind to how it affects you. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about materialism, when it talks about greed, it says that it's a sin of the eye because it blinds you to its presence. So, so, so when you have uh, excess concern for, or worry about, love of, need for, possessions, we don't easily see it in our lives. And over and over and over again, the Bible says, look, this is a different kind of sin than, than other ones. In, in Luke chapter 12, for instance, Jesus is talking about this. And he makes this statement, and he says this in Luke chapter 12. He says, watch out for all kinds of greed. And then he says, life is not measured by what you own. Now, he doesn't say, watch out for all kinds of adultery. It's not because he doesn't think adultery is a, is a sin. It's because typically when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. You're like, oh, that's not my spouse, right? But a lot of times, it's still early. We're, we'll <clears throat> but you don't always know when you're being greedy or materialistic because the nature of greed is that it has the power to blind you to its power over you. And if that's true, then it's safe to assume that greed and materialism are in you and I too, and so we should be watching out for it. And so the Bible kind of gives us a helpful guideline to see if we're anywhere in the ballpark of what God desires in our generosity. It's not the only way, but it's a way. It's a standard that's right here in the passage that we just read in Malachi. It's called the tithe. This is the tenth uh, part or ten or percent. You see it there in, in verse 10. The Bible shows us in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures that God required his people to give away 10% of their annual income to charity and to ministry. There's actually three tithes that were set apart for the nation of Israel for God's people. So there was, there was one that was uh, given to support full-time religious workers who did not have a land of their own. Um, it was to provide a meal for community celebration and religious fellowship, and a third to provide for the needs of the poor. So together, there's actually three ties that add up to about 23% of one's agricultural income, because it's an agrarian society there, produced in the promised land. So the, the tithe was, was offering uh, from your income to the Lord as an expression of thanks and dedication. And then, and then on top of that, if you just were to look through the Old Testament, there's provision for free will offerings and personal giving that's above a tithe. So the tithe never stood alone. It's mentioned in Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 14 uh, that it was to be shared, especially with the Levites. Every third year, Deuteronomy 14 says this, every third year, however, the tithes would go to the local storehouses so that they could be distributed not just to the Levites, but also to the poor and marginalized people, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widow. So every time you start talking about the tithe of the Old Testament, the question always comes up, well, what does that have to do with New Testament Christians? Because we are a New Testament church. We're New Testament Christians. So that was an Old Testament law. Does that still apply to us? 
So God's priority in giving has never changed. So his priorities for giving would be ministers, mission, fellowship, and charity. That's not changed. In the New Testament, the tithe is mentioned. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees are these religious leaders, and this is what Jesus has to say to them. In Luke eleven forty-two, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you have given God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. So you're tithing. You're tithing the, the, the part that you're supposed to tithe. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Here's what Jesus is saying. First of all, it's right to tithe. He said, you're doing that. That's the right thing. But the problem with you Pharisees is that there's actually a need in the community, a need that needs to be met financially, and love and justice demands that you meet it, but you have this kind of legalistic limitation, and you think, as long as I just give my 10%, everything else is mine. You don't go beyond the the tithe, which shows that you're not being run by love and justice, but by this code of conduct. And, And here's what I think that Jesus is getting at. That for the Old Testament people, the Old Testament people who needed the law, they needed the sacrificial system to be right with God, the 10% was required. But now New Testament people, with all the blessings and the privileges of grace, what we just sang about, what Jeremy talked about at communion, and mercy and forgiveness and the cross of Christ and his finished work on our behalf, we should not expect to give less than the Old Testament people of God. It just doesn't make any sense. We're not supposed to see the tithe as a limit to our giving. It's a starting line. And so for the New Testament Christian, begin with a percentage giving and then see what you can do after that. To be biblically generous is not to ask, well, how much am I giving to God but rather, how much of God's money will I keep for myself? And, and don't just limit it to money. It's all because we tithe our time. We, we tithe our talents. We tithe our abilities. We tithe our expertise. Anything we have, we can tithe it. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And you can listen to that and be like, well, that's just crazy. Plus, that's C.S. Lewis. It's not in the Bible. I don't have to listen to that. That's true. That's true. But be careful. Be careful. Because if that's your reaction, it could be, it could be that you're blind to some kind of greed. This is not very comfortable, is it? This is Some of you are like, I do not like this at all. I know I feel it too. Verse 10 in Malachi 3 says, To bring the full tithe to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So the word house there means a temple. So what he's saying is like, make sure that you give your first fruits into the storehouse of the temples. What what exactly is he talking about? What does that mean there? The word storehouse is a Hebrew word that means treasury. 
So you could read it as this. Bring your treasure or what you treasure the most into the treasury. Now, the issue with giving and the church is not that that is not just that Christians don't give enough to the local church. It's that Christians don't give in biblical proportions out of biblical joy, period. Because if people were giving like that, then there would be more than enough money for all the ministry that needs to happen inside and outside the walls of the church. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He teaches on this, and he says this. He says, when God says, bring me the whole tithe into my treasury, into my temple, into the worship of me and for my purposes in this world, what he's implied is that if you're not giving to God's treasury, then your tithe is going to some other temple. Let me illustrate that. If you find it really difficult to give money to the church or to give money to charity, but you find it incredibly easy to spend money on clothes, it's like, it's like effortless for you. It's the easiest thing in the world for you to do. Then it could be that your wardrobe is your real temple. The real treasury of your real temple is your personal appearance and how people might perceive you physically to gain some kind of sense of desirability and acceptance rather than looking for the love of God. If you find it difficult to be generous with your money, but very easy to spend money on your house, it could be that that's your real temple. You're looking to that to feel important and significant. Or maybe, maybe, you look at people who spend their money on homes or cars or clothes and you think, they're, they're crazy because you've lived in the same house for a year, you drive the same car, you wore the same shoes for years and years. And so you can judge people who spend on those things, but you stick all your money into savings, all your money into investments. You're so proud that you don't spend money, but you're not generous to church or to charity. You are under as much power than, uh, under the power of money. If you find it very difficult to give money away, but very easy to save it, then the bank is your treasury. Rather than God, you're looking to your savings to give you control in a chaotic world. You look at the amount that you have saved and you just think, if anything bad happens to me, I'm safe because I've got control over the situation. And so in all those things, you've got beauty and status, control, respect instead of God. The bottom line is this. It is effortless to be generous to whatever is your real God. The, the money just flows into the treasury of your real temple. The time is easily spent worshiping your functional God. And, and you might be sitting here like, is this guy trying to say I can't buy clothes or a house or furniture or home decor or have a savings account? No, of course not. I have those things. They're not bad things. The issue is when those things have me. The issue is when those things aren't treated like a gift to be stewarded or a gift to be given, but as a God to be worshipped. You have stuff? That's great. That's amazing. Blessing of God on your life. Does your stuff have you? That's the issue. And here's the deal. Everybody tithes to something. Everybody ties to something. Something in your life gets your first and gets your best, and it's whatever gives you the most meaning or provides you the greatest security in life. That is your real God and your real Savior, the real source of your significance and security.
And it's not even that you worship money. It's that what you are generous towards reveals what you worship. Our worship reveals our hearts, true affections. And for some of us, money serves a security idol. For some of us, it serves an approval or acceptance idol or a control idol. And so what, what God is saying here through the prophet, prophet Malachi is just saying, don't rob me of worship. That's the heart of what he's getting at. That's the heart of the, of the scripture's teaching on generosity. God is saying, you have disordered worship. You have a worship disorder. Don't rob me of my worship. Repent and turn around because the idols that you're pursuing, the idols that you're giving towards are never going to give you what you truly want. You only get true security, true significance, true acceptance, true joy, true satisfaction, true love. You cannot get it anywhere else except the person of Jesus. So if that's true, real quick, how do we become generous people? How do we become generous people? The first thing is we trust God more than our resources. We trust God more than our resources. When he, look at what he says again in Malachi 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. God's just saying, put me to the test says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God doesn't sound stingy. God doesn't sound greedy. God doesn't sound maniacal, like he just wants to take your stuff. He says, just test me. I, I'm, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow it up. There's not even going to be enough room to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, i got to stop for a second because a lot of times this passage and passages like this kind of get hijacked by a health and wealth prosperity teaching where if you give money to the church, you're going to get money back. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I do believe crazy things happen. And you might leave here today, you might put a little money in a box, and you go out to the parking lot, and somebody swapped your Honda Civic for a Bentley. That might happen. That would be a great day for you. We'll make a video about that. But I doubt that's going to happen. But the reality is, often the way that the world works is that God uses natural means to bless you. If you trust God, he's going to take care of you. It doesn't mean that he can't provide for you in crazy ways. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't bless his kids in crazy ways, because he does. But it means that we cannot use texts like this and manipulate them for our own financial gain. Because he's talking here, in this context, he's talking to them, the, the promise is about literal showers, that there's a drought and a famine that's going to break if they will follow God's commands. It's not talking about anything financial. But the blessing is not just for them, too. The blessing is for the community and the nations recognize it. It's the nations around. The real blessing of generosity and contentment is your freedom from being enslaved to the power of money and not being controlled by it. The Apostle Paul, he talks about the Macedonian church, and he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says, I want you to know about this church. He's, listen to what he says. We want you to know about the grace of God that he's given the Macedonian churches. Very poor, very, very poor church. He said, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They don't have a lot. They're very poor. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. You can argue with C.S. Lewis, but now you got to argue with the Apostle Paul. Entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. This is what they wanted. And, and Paul's talking about it. It's like they stunned us with their generosity. 
And then, and he says this, skip down to verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnest of others. He's like, look, I'm giving you the freedom. I just want you to know what's happening out there with these churches. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul's not putting like undue pressure on them. He's not trying to squeeze them. He's not trying to say, look, you're Christians. I'm an apostle. This is how much money to give. And he doesn't put pressure on their emotions. He's like, would you just look at all the poor orphans around? Give them some money, right? He's not doing that. He's simply saying, look, if you don't have the freedom to give extravagantly and to bless the world with your wealth, with whatever you have, it's because something besides Jesus is your functional Lord and Savior. And generosity, what Paul's trying to teach that Corinthian church, is one of the best single indicators of whether we really trust God and whether we're really surrendered to him. The Bible talks about that there are natural consequences to being a selfish person or a generous person. But the Bible also shows us there are supernatural consequences to our generosity because God inserts himself into the equation. He says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce, and your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will burst with new wine. For decades, this church has made it a priority to be generous with our resources in our community and around the world. Over, over the past 10 years alone, when you take our Advent offering that we have every year at Christmas, our missions and kind of outward focus budget that we set aside, our, our benevolence that goes out into our community, in the, in the past 10 years, we've given away, Niels told me, somewhere between 4.5 and $5 million. And it's not a brag on us, it's a total brag on God. It's an illustration of the faithfulness of God to provide for what we need, that fund ministries, taking care of the property, taking care of the facilities he gives us so that we can be a blessing literally to the nations and have a generational investment in future leaders and other works. Now, it could be it's magic that money just shows up, but I don't believe that. I believe it's the Spirit of God working in the hearts of people, blessing their work, blessing their investments, and people being generous. And I think when we honor God with our generosity, He honors us so that we can be a blessing to others. The reality is, for us as a church, we are in a different season as a church. And it's not just this church, it's churches across the country. Our, our attendance is down 50% from pre-COVID days. Um, the good news is, is that our giving is only down about 35% and our spending is down about 25%. Um, we are most likely going to face a deficit at the end of the year, but because of the careful stewardship over the years, we have a surplus that will cover any shortfall. The good news is, is that we've paid every bill this year. We've paid every bill every year. So this is not like, oh man, are we going to make it? We will. But as an elder and as the staff, we will be responsible to produce a balanced budget in 2022, given the realities around our income, and we're going to work really hard at reducing expenses. We're going to do with our house what we would counsel you to do with your house if you were faced with a similar situation. That's our part. Now for your part. The founding pastor of this church um, is famously quoted as saying, this church has all the money it needs. It's just all in your pockets. So if redemption is not your church home, you, can, you don't have to listen to this next part. 
But if redemption is your home, we want to just invite you to financially participate with us in what God is doing in and, and through us. If, if this is not home for you, you just being here is more than gift enough. And if you're like, well, I don't trust churches, and it doesn't look like you guys actually need the money of it. Okay, that's probably another sermon at another time, but let me just say this. Let me just make this point really clear. The goal of this church is not just about making budget. It's about making disciples. Equipping you as the saints of God to do the all of life work of ministry wherever God has put you and help you grow in your love for God and your love for neighbor. That's the goal. Part of that discipleship is generosity. It's in the Bible. It's all over Jesus. It's all over the church. So if this is home for you, if this is the place where you're fed spiritually, you can give in three ways. There's three things, three ways that you can participate in this. We have giving boxes that are at the exits uh, of all the locations here in this room. So if you thought those were trash cans, I appreciate it if you just stop putting trash in there. So um, you can give in person in that way. Um, you can also give through our app, right? So if you don't already have the app, you can download that. You can give to that. And then you can give online, uh, redemptionaz.com. You just go to the Gilbert section. All that stuff is right there. So you can give online. You can give in person. You can give through automatic bill pay. You can give through the app. So as leadership in this church, I just want to say we are going to continue to be generous. We've already proven that this year. There's M25 collection that's happening today in the lobby. We talked about that. It's a resource that's going to police officers and those experiencing homelessness. We've given over $25,000 with our Haiti fund, our Advent offering. We've given away already, already excess of $70,000. We're going to continue to trust God. We're going to continue to be generous and, and just trust that God is going to provide for us. When it comes to God, the, the bottom line is when it comes to our finances, we trust God. So Psalm 27 says this, some trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord. That's the bottom line for us. So that's the first way that you learn to be generous people. The second way is that you love people more than you love yourself. You love people more than you love yourself. Proverbs 14, 31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors God. You want to honor God? You want to worship God? Know what God cares about. Know what God cares about. And, and he, says, he says this, Proverbs eleven twenty five: A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It doesn't mean that money is going to magically show up in your bank account but it means that you are going to see how God will take care of you when you take care of other people. Normally, when we think about money, we always think about, okay, well, what do I need uh, first? So when I get some money, what do I need first for, for me? And then the next thing we think is like, okay, if I've got anything left after what I need for me, then I'll, then I'll save a little bit. And then if there's anything left after that, then I'll kind of give to charity or church or world around me, whatever their needs will be. The call of the Bible is to kind of really flip that on its head. The, to, to first say, when I get some money, I'm going to trust God because I know that he is going to take care of me. I know that he loves me. And he calls me to love others. So when someone, when someone gives me money, the first thought I have is how much am I going to give? I'm going to honor God with my first fruits and what honors him is caring for people. How can I leverage my finances, my time, my resources to make a difference in the world for the fame of Jesus and the good of people? So first, what will I give? 
Second, what can I save so I can be a future blessing to my family or others down the road? And then how will I adjust my standard of living to meet what's next? I adjust the quality of my living because it's a priority to give. It's a different way to live, but it's a better way to live. So the, the first way is that I trust God. I love people. The third way to generos- generosity is to work harder than everybody else. You want to be generous? Work harder than everybody else. There's a bunch of verses on this. I'm going to rattle through them. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the sloth will be put into forced labor. You work to get paid. Proverbs 6, 10, and 11. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. Proverbs 20, 13. If you sleep, if you love sleep, you will end in poverty. Keep your eyes open. There will be plenty to eat. Proverbs 12, 11, A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. This is a whole other message, but there is nothing, nothing worse than the known Christian at a workplace who is known as the worst employee in that workplace. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse than doing business with a known Christian who's terrible at what they do. If you want to be generous, work harder than everybody else. Fourth way, you want to be generous, be content with everything. Proverbs 21, 17, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Better to be lowly and a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Don't be the $30,000 millionaire. Don't try to live like a millionaire when you're on a $30,000 a year budget. In Proverbs 23, it says this, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies. They are a deceptive food. He's saying, look, when you're around the rich, you're going to want to kind of keep up with that lifestyle so that you can earn their approval, so you can earn their acceptance. And so when you get invited to that table and when you sit at the table of the, of the rich and you start to look around and you think, oh, I I want this. I could have this. He said, pick up that knife and put it to your throat. He's talking about your appetite. Control your appetite. Maybe it's not time to buy the new car or take out the loan or go on the trip. Be patient. Be content with what you have. You want to be countercultural? You want to be countercultural in your generosity? Understand delayed gratification. Last step in generosity, we're almost done, is to turn around because grace is waiting for you. Repent, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I was going one way, I don't want to go that way anymore. And some of you, you've just been careless with your money. You don't have great practices or patterns of thought when it comes to finances or even your time. You have, you have no margin and, and you're in debt and you can't save. And you don't want to live like that anymore. So a good option for you would be gaining some instruction on how to budget well and how to think about money differently um, we, we have a class taught by one of our pastors, Matt Dresbeck, on financial stewardship. You can sign up for that at the info desk. Maybe you want to talk with an elder. Maybe you want to talk with a pastor about that. Others of you, others of you, that's not necessarily you, but you, you are hating this sermon right now. It's almost over, so just sit tight. Because you just want to spend your money and you just want to spend your time on, on you and on your stuff. But you also know that you've experienced that the life of the stingy shrinks the life of the generous expands, and you know that you need a directional change in your life. Here's the good news, and we're, we're done with this. The promise of Malachi, the promise of God, 
is that you can return. The promise of life with God is freedom. The path to freedom is found right here in Malachi 3 and verse 7. Return to God. Repent. God doesn't break his promises. He never stops providing. He never stops fulfilling what you ultimately need. It's, it's the story of Zacchaeus. If you've never heard of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And in that day, what that meant is that he took money from his community and he extorted them because he overcharged and he skimmed from the top. He exploited those with less power for his own financial gain. And Zacchaeus was wealthy, but nobody wanted to be around him. And so he was isolated relationally because he was selfish financially. And one day Jesus comes to town and Jesus is this amazing teacher. He's doing miracles. People want to see him. The crowd Crowds press in. But Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And so he has to climb up into a tree to be able to get a shot at Jesus. And Jesus walks by and he sees him in a tree. And what does Jesus do? Does he call him out? There he is. Everybody get him. That's Zacchaeus. That's the guy we've been looking for. No. He says, Hey, man, come on down. I want to go eat with you. I want to spend time with you. He comes with grace. He parts the crowd, and he says, let's go eat together. And that changed Zacchaeus' life because Jesus came to him, and he's coming to you. And so if the, in this whole like, conversation about generosity, being generous with your money and your time and what you have, if you're feeling, if you're feeling shame, I just want you to know that's really not the point. It's not the point just to feel bad. An encounter with God should leave us changed, not just make us feel bad. Zacchaeus has a life-changing encounter with Jesus because the, the story goes, he paid back everyone that he wronged and he gave away a significant portion of his income to the hurting and poor people in the city. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, you, you want to be okay with God? This is what you have to do. But an encounter with God changed him. Why? Here's the thesis statement of this whole talk. Okay, so you probably wish I would have just said this right at the beginning so you could have zoned out. Because God is generous with us, we're free to be generous with others. That's the point. That's the gospel. God's generosity towards us. When we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. And in turn, we now have the ability to be freed up from greed, to be freed up from slavery to stuff, to be freed up from slavery to ourselves. We didn't have that apart from God and his work in our heart and in our life. But now we do. We're free to be generous in the way that God has been generous to us. Not as some kind of way to earn it, no, but because it's been freely given to us. When we are loved, we love, and we see that he is trustworthy, we can trust, and we can entrust what we've been given in the way that he says to, be, to best use it. Jesus came and died for you. Why would he do that? The only answer would be that you and I are his heart's treasure. Every other treasure in the world makes you die to purchase it. Everything else, the world props up as, hey, here's the treasure, here's the ultimate, here's what you want, here's what's going to satisfy you, here's what you, here's what you aim your whole life at. Everything else that the world props up makes you die for it. Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. Some of you, you're working yourself into the ground or you're spending self, yourself into debt to purchase significant. Jesus is the only significant one who died to purchase you. 
Think about the radical generosity of Jesus on the cross. When you see him dying because you are the treasure of his heart, then and only then will he become your greatest treasure. And when you see that, what we, we, we don't have to worry about security or significance. You don't have to worry about money and stuff. It'll just be stuff. And you'll see that Jesus is everything that you want most in life, and then you'll be free. If you want to be generous like Jesus was to you, don't sit down and start to stare at the calculator or the calendar. Stop and stare and wonder at the cross. Love like he loved. Give like he's given to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. God, this is a, a, a difficult teaching. God, it's offensive to us. It bothers us. It makes us uncomfortable. God, I believe all of that is really just kindness because you're revealing to us, God, where our worship is aimed. And Father, we want to repent. We want to turn from that. God, we want to trust you because we believe that you are who you say you are. We believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. God, that your intention is not just to take, but God, your intention is to give. We see that so beautifully in how you gave us your son, how you give us your spirit, how you give us life eternally with you. So God, we trust you that you are a giving God. Make us a giving people. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.